You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you. Um, go ahead and flip to 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, it, would, it would definitely help you to have a Bible in front of you, 1 Peter chapter 3. And I uh, want to just go ahead and uh, point you to verse 8 and make sure that we've got context in our mind. And so if you see um, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 8, it starts with the word finally. And so um, Peter is signaling that we're at a close of something. And so if you've read the whole book of 1 Peter, you know that there's five chapters and not just three. So it's not the book, um, but it's this section that started in chapter 2, verse 12. And so I want to point your attention back to chapter 2, verse 12, just to kind of get the context working in your mind um, before we um, dig into to verse 8. So um, chapter 2, verse 12, here's what Peter is saying. In light of what God has done for you, specifically verse 9, that he has made you, um, or he has caused you to be this chosen people, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this people for his own possession, this people that he has lavished mercy and grace on. In light of that, what God has done for you, then he says verse 12, and this is kind of the contextual piece of this for us. He says, in light of that, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, so so that's the context. He's saying that in light of what God has done for you, now you live in in a certain way that would show me to the world. So, So maybe you could think of it this way. That Peter is saying, in light of what I have done for you, now you live in such a way that would adorn the gospel. You, you live in such a way that now it makes the gospel actually believable to your neighbors. That it would actually authenticate the gospel to people who see the way that you live. Um, and this is the way, kind of the terminology that we've used for it. That you would be living in a way that demands a gospel explanation. That your life would be lived like that in light of what God has done for you. That he has justified you, he has adopted you, brought you into the family, redeemed you, rescued you out of slavery. All of that. In light of that, now you live in, in a surprising way. I love how Peter refers to it in uh, chapter 4, verse 4, when an outside kind of watching world watches a Christian, that it's, it's got this surprising nature to it, that, that the gospel produces that sort of a life in a, in a Christian. Okay, so, so that's the context. Now, if you were to say, um, ask, start asking the question, okay, so, so what does it look like to live a life that demands a gospel explanation? This is where we've been for the last couple of months, or month and a half, trying to answer that question. And, and Peter starts it in verse 13 of chapter 2. He says, if you want to know what that looks like, well, first of all, you might think of it in terms of how you would relate to, to authority over you. So he uses government as an illustration of that, that for the Lord's sake, we would submit to the governing authorities. When you get to verse 18 in chapter 2, it's how you... Um, endure graciously and patiently how you endure unjust suffering then when we got to chapter three we spent the last month um, digging into kind of the first seven verses of chapter three where peter's going to say i'm kind of introduce this idea of marriage that within marriage god has given you this unique opportunity to demand a uh, uh, you know to live a life that demands a gospel explanation and he looks at wives and he says wives um, part of that for you is going to mean that you joyfully and willingly follow the leadership that god has placed over you for, for men, that you take the responsibility to lead and love and lay down your life for the sake of your wife and, and for the good of your wife. Okay, now before we move on from that, we spent the last three or four weeks there. Before we move on from that, I want one parting shot, um, one kind of summary of all that, one last little thing concerning marriages. So this is like a, a two-second, or actually a little bit longer than two-second um, preface to this whole thing looking backward. I, I just want to remind you, before we keep moving to verse 8, that your marriage is of crucial importance. 
It is crucial. This is one of the primary ways that God has given you to live in such a way that would demand a gospel explanation. Okay, now for some of you in the room over the last three weeks, and really you've known this for a while, your marriage is in crisis mode. If you're to use the imagery of a house, you have got serious structural foundational problems in your marriage, and one more strong wind might blow it over. That's where you are. It's in crisis mode. Just as strongly and as forcefully as you can hear, can you just hear me say you need to get help like now? Not like in a week from now or in three days from now, but you need to get on the journey of getting help like today. That needs to start. And see, here's what happens in this moment if you're in crisis mode, um, especially if you're a guy in the room. You've got this mentality of, well, okay, I got myself into this mess, so surely I can fix it. Can I just remind you that you're the one that got yourself into that mess? Chances are you can't fix it. If you could have, you probably wouldn't be there, right? I mean, can you just hear that? The chances are you're not going to fix it. And so you need to get help like ASAP. Okay, now for others in the room, you're not in crisis mode, but there have been cracks revealed in your marriage. And can I just encourage you as gently and as forcefully as possible that you need to get help. If that's you, if there are cracks forming, the dumbest thing you could do is act like those things don't exist. Because you know where cracks go eventually? They go into crisis. Over a, a short period of time, Cracks turn into crisis mode in your marriage. And so if, if you're lackadaisical on that, if, you're, if your kind of strategy is, well, I'm going to scrape that under the rug and hope they disappear. That is a dumb strategy. Okay, that's not wise. It's not good for you to do that. Um, this last um, week, Laura has pointed out some things in me that as it relates to our marriage are failures on my part. Um, that they are areas that they're cracks in our marriage. And so I just want you to hear that. She's pointed that out to me and, uh, and I can totally see and own how approval makes it at times very hard for me to be vulnerable, even to Laura, how um, my lack of trust in God and sometimes thinking that, that I'm a better savior than God for our church family um, produces this, this situation where work bleeds directly into our family. Um, so I, I feel like at times if I don't answer that email or respond to this thing, that it's going to all fall apart. And it's just unbelief on my part. I can totally see how comfort has, has created this. And it's idolatrous need for comfort has created in me at times um, an unwillingness to communicate like I should. Okay, now I, I say all that in hopes of it producing this and you seeing this. That's, that, that's not like a thing that, that I would scrape under the rug. Like I totally own that, recognize that and see how that is sin in me that, that needs to, to get help. Right? And so I'm not scraping that under the rug. I'm owning that and we're getting help in that. So, so what help, part of what help looks like for me is that it's out in front of all of our home group. That's out in front of all of our staff and a few other men to speak into, to watch that, to, to carefully watch that, to ask good questions into that. That's out for good biblical counseling for us. Right? And so and I say all of that in hopes that some of you in the room think that we expect you to have a perfect marriage. And so you pretend that you do when you don't. I mean, I hope that might just free you up to realize no one expects that from you. And, and it's foolish for you to pretend that it is when it isn't. And so if that's you, man, you, need to, you need to take that seriously. If over the last three weeks, God has been convicting and working in and exposing some things, then you need to get on that ASAP and get help with that. And for some of us in the room, we're just really lazy. 
or on the other side, we're too busy on non-essentials to take time to, to actually think about and address what is an essential. And can I just remind you, men in the room, your marriage is an essential. It's an essential. Okay, so if that's, if that's you, if you're in those categories, then you need to make sure you are not too busy to address that. You need to make sure you are all about doing that. Now, men, I'm just going to put this on you and we're moving on. Men, it is up to you as head to make sure that is addressed in your family and you are actively seeking help and correction in that. So, so if that needs to happen, it needs to happen today. And that's on you to do that. Okay, now last thing for singles. And then we're on to verse 8. Singles, here's what happens to many single men and women. In hopes of getting married, a desperate hope of getting married, they look at a man or a woman who is not on the trajectory of God and they marry them hoping they will be the one who changes that trajectory. So, so it's a lady who would look at a guy who is nowhere near following God, nowhere near trustworthy to be ahead of a home yet. And they say, well, we'll just kind of bypass these things that God would say are necessary in him in hopes that when we get married, he'll change or I'll change him. And I hope you can see down the road of what you're putting yourself into there. If you can see like down those train tracks, at some point, the train derails on that track. That is not good for you. Okay, here's how God would rather you view that situation. Is, is the people I'm going to marry, like those people that are in that pool for me, those are people who have their trajectory already set on God. Do you see the difference in that? And so singles, I, I just want to encourage you toward that. And I'm going to give you this free advice. Two things. One, if you're single in the room, it would serve you to get around good marriages with, with a wise husband, a wise lady, and for you to do whatever it takes to get in their space. If you have to go and start washing their dishes, keeping their kids, whatever it takes for you to get in their space, you do that. And secondly, for you to give them enough authority where they can speak into any man, any woman that you're bringing into your life. And you're giving them authority to say, that guy is a moron and you shouldn't go there. Okay, they've got authority to say that and you're okay with that and you'll listen to that. And listen, it might just save your life if you'll do that. All right? Okay, so verse eight. All that was to get to verse eight. Okay, so here we go. So, and we're on this idea of, of Peter saying, you live a life that demands a gospel explanation. So he gets to the word finally in verse eight and he's saying, okay, this is the last little category I'm giving you. If you want to see what a life that looks like that demands a gospel explanation, here's what it looks like. Here's the final little piece of this. And then he goes on to say this, finally, all of you. Okay, now I want you to see what he just did with that. In, in this whole kind of chapter two into chapter three, he's had specific categories. So it's the, the kind of the um, employee under the unjust master category. It's the wife in a marriage category. It's the husband in a marriage category. But now it's all of you. Now he's saying church, like Stonegate right here. I'm talking to you specifically as a church body, as a church family. So this isn't husbands. This isn't wives. This is us as a corporate church. This is Stonegate. This is all of us together. Finally, all of you. So he's going to turn his attention toward the church, specifically how we're relating to one another, how, how we're interacting with one another. And then he gives these five commands that go along with it. So finally, all of you in the context of the church, th this is, this is the sort of people I want you to be and become. This is how I want you to relate to one another. Five commands. He says this, have unity of mind, have sympathy, have brotherly love, have a tender heart and a humble mind. Now, I think it's interesting if, if God through Peter could communicate five things to the church that he would pick those five, 
those five things out. Isn't that interesting? Out of all the words, out of all the different things he could have commanded, he commanded these five. So now when I hear that, here's what I hear. Those must be weighty things. Those must be fairly important. If those are going to be the five things that God would look at a church and command them to be, command them to do relationally with one another. Okay, now here's my angst for this morning. My angst is, um, we are two and a half years old as a church. So, so two and a half years old. So here's what that means. And if you want to put that in marriage analogy, kind of use that imagery, that would mean that we are finished with the honeymoon. The honeymoon's over for us. So, so here's what that practically looks like. Um, when, when a lot of us came into Stonegate, um, we saw nothing but the good other people brought to the table. But after a two and a half year period, you know what you also see? All the baggage, all the junk, all the sin, all the idolatry that people also bring to the table. So, so here's what that creates relationally. It creates some distance. It creates some friction. It creates some relational problems. So, so now we're two and a half years in, and I can speak with absolute confidence that I know I've offended probably half the people in the room over the last couple of years. And, and I know that you've offended other people in the room, that your sin has caused problems relationally in the room. I, I could probably say really safely that there's people in the room right now that you really don't like very much that you're kind of offended by right now. They've done something to you. You've done something to them that's created this little, this little issue right now. So there's this little barrier and this little division. And so he, here's my angst for this morning, is that God would speak into that. I think it's a real timely word for us, that God would speak into those little issues, those little cracks that have created, been created in our church family over the last two and a half years. So, so that's the angst, that we would hear these words and we would heed these words from Peter and allow some mending that we would be under good instruction and allow Peter to pastor us well in the midst of those things. And, and by the way, if you're new, fairly new to us, um, the honeymoon will soon be over for you too. And here's what you're going to see, that, that we are so messed up that Jesus really had to die for us, that we're that sinful, that we've got that many problems. And you're also going to see a great gospel that, that God was glad to die for us. We're loved so much that God was glad to, Right? So I just want you to prepare you for that. It's, it's coming for you too. The honeymoon will soon be over. Okay, with that said, um, five commands. I want to work through these five things as it relates to our church family and it relates to relationally, the context of our church family, um, and let you sit under this. So, so five commands that, that Peter gives us. We'll start with the first one. First one, verse eight says, have unity of mind. H- have unity. It's this prioritization of unity. Um, in other translations, it might say, um, live in harmony with one another. Okay, so I, I want to kind of back up and give some, some definition, some context for this. So first of all, we'll, we'll take unity in the Bible. And I just want you to see that this, commands, this command runs throughout the New Testament and, and is applied to churches in general. So like you, throughout the New Testament, this command applies. And just listen to this, kind of taking one step out of, of 1 Peter. Romans 12, 16, this is going to be on the screen for you. It says this, live in harmony with one another. Okay, so, so live in unity, live in harmony with one another. Romans 15, 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus and why. I love the, the last part of, of Romans 15. Verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, we covered this about a year and a half ago, where Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And what does walking in a worthy manner look like? Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. John 17, this is Jesus praying. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. So Jesus is praying for unity for his church. 
And I, I think this is the reason in, in uh, the Corinthian church, they're continually rebuked for divisions and a lack of unity. Philippians chapter 1, and there's another one in Philippians chapter 2, but here's one in Philippians 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether, and this is what it looks like, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, that's unity, and in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So I just want you to see that this command is weighty. It's all throughout the New Testament. This isn't an isolated issue that Peter's kind of addressing. You see this addressed throughout the New Testament, that unity is a prized commodity in the church. Okay, now with that, I want to describe what unity is. This is unity described. Unity does not mean that we all look alike, dress alike, that we all wear black sweaters this morning with a little white thing under it. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that, that we all have the same personality. It doesn't even mean we have, all have the same preferences. What unity means is that we all have the same priority. Unity means we all have the same center, namely Jesus. That's what unity means. It, it's, it's, a, it's an acknowledgement that at the center of our place and the center of our hearts, we all have the same thing. We're all working for the same thing, for the fame of Jesus. And here's the good thing. When Jesus is in the center of a place and in the center of a people, in the center of a marriage, he is big enough There's enough mass there that it creates this strong gravitational pull that if you're white, black, or brown, rich, poor, male, female, all of that, there's there's a strong enough gravitational pull with Jesus in the center that it actually keeps us all in orbit. It actually keeps us all coming around each other. That that core and that center is so strong that that we can all be that. Not everybody the same. Not not everybody has the same preferences. but But it keeps us all in orbit around that same center. But see, what happens is when you shove Jesus out of the center and you put a preference in the center, you put your personality, your taste, your likes in the center, then they don't have enough mass to keep everyone revolving around you. See, your preferences is not big enough and strong enough to have everyone in this room revolving around it. Do you see that? It's not. See, so what's at stake in unity, what's at the heart of unity is saying, Jesus has got to be center here. That the fame of God has got to be center. And when that's center, it it forms this unity. Now, I'm going to read this quote from you from a guy named Stephen Cole. As he describes what happens when a person has that center working in their life. Here's how he describes it. He says, a harmonious person seeks to get along with others. He is not self-willed, demanding his own way and judging those who don't go along with him. He is a team player who considers the other person's perspective and give, gives others room to be different. He accepts people as Christ accepts them. He knows the difference between biblical absolutes, big thing here, biblical absolutes, which must not be compromised in gray areas where there's plenty of latitude for difference. He gives people time to grow, realizing that it's a process. Now, let me just ask you the question. Does that sound like you? Not a self-willed demanding person, a good team player. I mean, does that sound like you? Would people describe you that way? As a person who actually seeks the good of unity, actually seeks and values unity. I mean, is that you? Is that how people describe you? Okay, now let's put this in the context of the church, unity and the church. I think we would all agree that unity in a church is a very difficult thing. One, and mainly because we're all sinners, right? We've all got serious problems in each of our lives that create a very difficult environment to keep unity centered. 
And it's especially hard when that guy in the, in the row behind you stabs you in the back. Then, then it gets really hard, right? And so I, I just want to remind you, we, I, I've done this several times over the last couple of years, but I just want to remind you, I, I want you to look at the faces around the room. Look at the faces, like maybe get a couple across the room, just in your view, where, where you're seeing a couple of the faces across the room. And I want to remind you that those are the faces, those are the people that are going to stab you in the back. Th- those are the people who are going to kick you periodically when you're down. Th- those are the same people who, all of that, who are going to probably gossip behind, at, you know, behind your back at some point, who are going to say demeaning things, who are going to have unkind words. Th- those are the people across this room who are going to do that. Now, in li- okay, now, and by the way, if, if that is not happening, if you're in the room and you look around the room and think, man, I, I don't have any of that going on in the room right now. There, there's nobody that's done that to me. Here's what that means. One is you don't know them or haven't known them long enough yet. Or two, you don't know them well enough yet. But when those two things get solidified, you know them long enough and well enough, that, that's going to happen. You need to expect that to happen. That, that is just a byproduct of getting to know sinful people. That God is still in the process of redeeming some things in them. Okay, so, so that's going to happen. And in that moment, I want you to listen real carefully to this. In that moment, when they sin against you, you have two options. Option number one is you can run. And, and this is everything in us wants this, right? Everything in us wants to pull back. Everything in us wants to run, even to a different church. We'll just go find a different church, a better church, a church that doesn't have sinful people in it. We'll go find that church. Okay, so, so that's one option. Okay, now I want you to look at me right, right in the face when I say this. If you go that route, you are ensuring that, that you are going to be disabled spiritually. That you are going to retard what God wants to do in you. Okay, now are you, are you hearing that? That if you run from things and situations, from people sinning against you, if, if, you're, if you kind of obey that little fleshly impulse to just say, stiff arm, I'm out then you retard what God is actually trying to do in you. See, you got one option to run. Here's the other option, is you can actually allow the gospel to deepen in you and respond with a gospel heart. You can apply the gospel to their sin, and you can apply the gospel to your sin, and Jesus actually wins in that thing. But but here's the thing. You've got to make some decisions now on how you're going to respond into that. Knowing that there's going to be this little fleshly impulse that says, run, stiff arm, get away from, find a better, that, that's going to be in you. you. You've got to make that decision now that I value unity enough to where I'm actually going to seek peace and pursue it, even when I'm sinned against. And, and by the way, you're, it's just a matter of time before you do the sinning, right? So, so to get in your mind, it's not, you're never just going to be the victim here. You're going to be the victimizer too in various seasons and times in your life. So for you to have the mindset of I'm not going to run, but I'm actually going to, to value unity enough where I'm going to respond with the gospel. Okay, and there's a lot at stake here because unity is a display of the gospel, right? I mean, unity is a display of that. I, there is a sense, and, and you're going to see this next week, in which Peter's going to say that it is in light of unity. It's, it's in people seeing what the gospel produces, this unity that the gospel produces, that people actually respond to the gospel. It's through unity, people like this, valuing unity enough that displays the gospel to a watching world. It's in a situation like this that a 60-year-old and a 20-year-old who have nothing in common can come and worship in the same place, love and care for each other in the same place. When when that starts happening and their, their lives are intertwined, they're actually serving one another, that puts the gospel on full display for the world to see, right? 
So, so Peter's first command is um, th- there needs to be a value on unity here. Second command. Look down in verse 8. Second one. He says you need to have sympathy. Do you see that? There, there, there needs to be this prioritized sense in which we say we value. We are all about sympathy. Okay, so what does sympathy mean? If you break it down into two words, it, it's got this idea of suffering with. So, so in, in this way, sympathy is an emotive word. It requires you to feel. Like if you want to see what sympathy actually looks like, it's a Romans um, 12 where Paul says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. That's what sympathy actually looks like in tangible actions. It's this heart and this posture towards other people where you're living in their shoes. You can actually respond in a sensitive way where you're living in those shoes, where you're actually feeling what they're feeling. Um, This week I had a guy um, call me and uh, it was like one of those phone calls that I'd been waiting to get forever from this guy. And so he calls me and there was a major breakthrough in just business world for them. So just a sweet moment where he calls, he gives me the news. And it was just a moment for me to get to sit back and just be grateful with him and thankful for the work of God on his behalf in this area. And so, um, man, just thinking about this week, it, it goes, I mean, and by the way, that, that's what sympathy feels like. It's, it's that call and actually being able to rejoice with that person in that moment. But I want you to see this connection into how this plays out. That the reason I was able to rejoice in that moment with him was because for the last year and a half, I've gotten to know him. I've gotten to know his family. I've gotten to know his, his kids. I've gotten to know their story and their journey. I've gotten to hear how business has gone for them for the last several years. I've gotten to hear all of that. We've got to pray like crazy for God to do some really good things in their business over the last year and a half. So I've gotten the chance to do all of that. So when that phone call happens, there is something in me that my heart starts beating fast when I hear that. There's something in me, like on the depths of my soul, that actually rejoices with him as he's rejoicing. Okay, but I want you to see this connection. The only way you can have sympathy for another person is to actually know them. The only way you can have sympathy for a person is to have shared life and shared experiences with them. See, this is why um, if if you were to be sitting at dinner tonight and there was a uh, thing that came across the news that says another plane has gone down, 300 people died. You would not miss probably putting one bite in your mouth. But if that's your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your mom, your dad, there would be this, this gasp in your soul and this emotive thing of just being flooded with tears. Wouldn't it? Now, why is that? Because you know your mom and dad. Because you know your husband, you know your wife, you know your kids. See, sympathy requires this shared life. It actually requires you to know people and be known by people. That's what sympathy requires. So see, there's this link here of sympathy and actually being related to people, connected to people. And it's so strong that I think I could even take like this one step and say this, as it relates to our church family, that this command to to have sympathy for people, it actually requires one command down underneath it. It implies this command of you actually have to be known by people here to have sympathy for people here. That you actually have to know and be known by people in the room, like in this church family. That's the context. Not, not somewhere that you work with, not your neighborhood, but in this church family. That you actually have to know people well enough to be sympathetic for them. And that they actually have to know you well enough that they can express sympathy toward you. I, that link is strong enough. Right? I think it would allow me to say this, that you're disobeying this command if you are not known and, know, and knowing here. 
And it's not just like a bad habit where I don't know people here. It's like sin that you don't know people here. So, So if you've come for an extended season and yet you're still unknown... I think it would lead me to say that's, that's not just a bad habit, that's sin for you. If you've come for an extended season and you're not knowing people here, then it's not just a bad habit, it's not just, well, we've been busy, that's sin. That part of what it means to, to have sympathy for your, in, inside the context of your church family, part of what that means is you're actively pursuing knowing people and being known by people. And let me ask you the question, do you know people here? I mean, like, do you know people here? And and like, I'm a little bit hesitant to say this because I think that you could actually equate going to a home group to knowing people. And that doesn't actually mean the same thing. I think it's a great first step. If you're not in a home group, you probably should get in one like ASAP because that's a good way for you to know people and be known by people. But I don't want you to confuse that going to a home group, listen, you can go to a home group for the rest of your life and still hide all day long. So it's going, it's, it's going with the intention of actually being known and letting people know, know you and you know them. It's actually going with that intention. So I want you to see this command for sympathy requires you to know people. So, so are you sympathetic for people in the room? To ask that in another way, how relationally connected are you to people in the room? This, this is Paul's emphasis. This is his command here. Have sympathy, but, but he's got more. Third one. So it's not just have sympathy. He says um, this thing with brotherly love. Like we should have love for one another. So, so there should be this thing where we are actively loving and pursuing to love one another. Like in the context of this church family, that there should be an active emphasis on loving people around this room. Okay, so, so let's define what love is first. Because anytime that you talk in our culture about the word love, people have no idea. I mean, this, it's like putting jello on a wall. It just, it it means, it's so overused that it actually means nothing. It means so much in our culture that it's lost all of its meaning. And so we say things like, we love the Cowboys. We love um, our favorite TV show. We love this song. We love this hobby. We love our house. We love a thousand other things. And then we'll say, we love our wife. We love our kids. We love God. Okay, that that means two totally different things, doesn't it? And and so love gets so much mileage that it's lost all of its meaning. And so I want to give you a quick definition here. We covered this a, a couple of months ago. Um, at the end of 1 Peter chapter 1, but, but here's what we said for a definition on that day. Love is desiring and acting in the best interest of another as those best interests are defined by God. So it's, it's desiring and acting in the best interest. It's, it's wanting and it's working for the good of those people around you. So, so it's not just wanting it. It's not just, I would love for, for, for good there, but it's actually working for it. See, it's not neutral. L- loving somebody is not, well, I didn't kill them or um, I didn't like break their leg when they did. It's not, it's not neutral. It's saying that, that I'm actually positive here. Like I'm actually proactive. Like I'm actually going out of my way to want and to work for their good. That's love. And and this is why um, love always requires like this crucifixion of self, this death to self and selfishness. Because it requires, when when it's your wants versus their needs, it requires you to die to all of your wants to meet their needs. 
So it's actually wanting and working for their best interest, acting and, and desiring for, the, for their best interest as defined by God. So it's not, it's not us coming along beside them and saying, well, I think this would be best for them. It's us recognizing what God says is best for them. Conformity to Jesus is best for them. That's what produces lasting joy and lasting happiness in them. So I'm working for what God defines as best, their conformity to Jesus. Actively working for that, act, actively pursuing that. Okay, and then he describes what love is. Love described. You see the word brotherly there? The, he, he, he describes the sort of love that a church family is supposed to have as brotherly love. And, and I love this. It's a distinctly Christian idea. It's a distinctly Christian thing because of the work of Jesus for us that, that we in this room would look at God and say, we all in an ultimate and an eternal sense have one father, have a father. We all share him in common. His name is God. Because of the work of Jesus for us, we are adopted into the family of God. So here's what that makes us. When you look across this room, you don't see um, sons and daughters. You don't see grandpas and grandmas. When we look across the room, we see brothers and we see sisters. Isn't that an amazing idea? This is why in the, in the New Testament, probably the dominant metaphor for the church is church as a family. It's saying, this metaphor, and what Peter is saying here, is that when we look around the room, there should be this family sort of love that we have. This brotherly sort of love that we have. That we're not distant relatives. We're not strangers. That that it's this brotherly sort of a thing that we've got going. That we're actively pursuing to love one another. And and so, um, here's what that means. That we can actually act like a family. And listen, there are times when brothers throw uppercuts at each other, aren't there? There are times that that happens. There are times that that good squabbles happen. There are times, I I didn't grow up with a house full of girls, but I'm sure that hair pulling happens, all of that. I'm sure that all those things happen, but, but here's what brothers don't do. Brothers don't disown each other. Brothers don't walk away from each other. Right? And so it's an affirmation that the blood of Jesus that was big enough and, and expansive enough to cover our sin is also big enough to cover all of our little petty disagreements, all of our sin against one another, that the blood of Jesus is actually big enough to cover all of that as well, isn't it? It's affirming that. And I want to take just a second here to address those of you in the room who have been hurt deeply um, by the church along the way, by, by people in churches just like this. You have been hurt deeply. In, in that moment, what happens to most of us when, when we're hurt deeply is there is this defensive mechanism that comes up and stiff, starts to stiff arm people. It's just an act of self-protection like, and self-preservation. I will never put my heart in a situation like that again. I will never open myself up like that again. I, I will never make myself vulnerable again. That defensive mechanism comes up for everyone in the room when you are hurt deeply. And for some of you, you're living in that defensive mechanism, in that defensive posture of, I will not let people in like this. Okay, I want to say maybe a couple of things for you, or to you. One is, first of all, I I just want to express to you (coughs) that I am so sorry that the church has treated you like that. That I think that is very painful when that happens, specifically in the context of the church. And here's the second thing, though, that I think is good for you to hear this morning. That you cannot live in a defensive self-preservation and self-protection posture and obey this command to brotherly love. You can't do both. And and here's what you're actually going to find, is that if you walk down long enough this road of self-preservation, 
More than it being a home for you, it turns into a prison for you. Listen to these words from C.S. Lewis. We read these a couple of months ago. I just want to remind you of these again and let you see these again. This is in his book, book called The Four Loves. He says this. He says, I am a safety first creature. Of all arguments against love, none make so strong an appeal to my nature as careful. This might lead you to suffering. To my nature, my temperament, yes, I I would affirm that, he's saying, but not to my conscience. When I respond to that appeal, I seem to myself to be a thousand miles away from Christ. If I am sure of anything, I am sure that his teaching was never meant to confirm my congenital preference for safe investments and limited liabilities. I doubt whether there is anything in me that pleases him less. And then he says this, when it comes to love, there is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung out and possibly broken. But here's the alternative. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy and hurt, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. And so I I want that just to maybe sober some of us in the room who we have adopted the self-preservation posture. I will not love like that again. That, That if you go that route, it turns into a prison for you. It turns into this casket where you become an unbreakable person. And you can't do that and obey this. It's disobedience to stay that way. So, so Peter is saying, or, yeah, Peter is saying that this is the call. It, it's to love one another. And, and lastly, that this love is, is a gospel display. And this is uh, John 13, when Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's going to tell them that, that if you want to know how people are going to know you're my disciples, it's how brotherly love happens in this context. How you seek peace and pursue it. How you take the gospel, the blood of Jesus that covered your sin, and you apply it to the sins of others against you. That there is a gospel display that happens there. Fourth command. Peter keeps going here. Look, look at 1 Peter 3 verse 8. He says, have a tender heart. Do you see that? Fourth one, have a tender heart. In the NASB, it describes it as being kind-hearted. Okay, I think you could kind of take it as this idea of being gentle and kind. This is the idea he's getting at, being tender-hearted. Okay, now let's take kindness and culture real quick. I I think we would all agree that when it comes to our culture, that uh, kindness is a missing attribute. The ethic of our culture is take. This is why um, there is this natural assumption that you probably have when, when somebody knocks on your door that you're trying to ask the question, what are they trying to get from me? What are they trying to take from me? What are they trying to sell me? What sort of money are they trying to make off me, right? The, the ethic of our culture is take. 
Um, you can see unkindness um, in the newspaper. Read any page and you're probably going to see unkindness. You watch the news tonight, you're going to see unkindness all over the place. A lack of kindness everywhere. You're going to see it show up in random acts of wickedness and sexual exploitation. We could just go down the, the laundry list of how a lack of kindness shows itself. If you'll just watch people, you'll see a lack of kindness all over the place. If you'll watch people, how, how teenagers respond to parents, how parents respond to teenagers, how employers treat employees, how employees treat one another. You're going to see unkindness, a lack of kindness everywhere. There is a drought of kindness in our culture. Kindness is very uncommon. And listen, that is even true in the church. I think for a lot of us in the room, we would probably say that some of the most unkind people that we have met have been people that we have met inside of a church family. And so I think we need to hear that side of the sword today, that this should cut most of us pretty deeply. Just a lack of general kindness toward people. Going out of our way to, to actually see and notice people. Okay, so, so let's define kindness really quickly. Jerry Bridges, he, he defines it this way. As kindness is the sincere desire for the good or the joy of others. For the, for the lasting happiness of others. It, it's a desire for their good. It's a desire to act, like actually go out of your way to notice and to speak life into people. Okay, this, is, this is the idea of kindness. And I, I want to address this just in, in a, one minute here, 60 seconds. We are trying really hard to create a culture around our church that values speaking truth into one another's life. That, that we're actually valuing, like right now, I'm putting my marriage in, in the spotlight for people to speak hard truth into it. But I, I want to make sure that's balanced with Ephesians 4, where it's going to say you speak the truth in love, that the goal is not just truth. The goal is speaking truth with love. See, you can be a grade A jerk speaking truth. You, you know that? They're everywhere. See, it's not just about speaking truth. It's actually about speaking the truth in the context of love, wrapped up in love. That, that's the goal that we're going for. It's not just truth. It's truth wrapped in love. See, we are not just called to give the truth of God to people. We're actually called to, to give the heart of God to people. And you see the difference in those two? That you need to make sure you have both of those. Like maybe you could just take this, this general encouragement. Before you speak truth into another person's life, you probably need to be able to cry over their sin. See, it's not just that we're trying to cast out sin and, and eradicate sin out of people, regardless of kind of the collateral damage. See, it's we're actually trying to eradicate sin as we build up men and women. Do you, you see that difference there? That the culture of kindness, it, it wraps in good, hard, sharp truth. It wraps that in love. And I, I think we need some of that. I think we need both of those two, two swords. We need good, sharp truth. And we need that good, sharp truth wrapped in a culture here that says, I value you. I love you. I'm for you. I'm totally with you on this thing. So, so this is kindness. It's actually working for the good of those. It's actually seeking the good of those around you. And I want you to see that kindness is commanded. That this is a command. This isn't like an option for you. We had a real interesting thing happen this last week. For our staff meeting, we brought in a guy to educate our staff on the issue of homosexuality. That we're just trying to grow in our understanding of how to minister to, how to understand these things. And so um, we brought him in and he was really trying to answer the question of the big kind of why over the top of homosexuality, which is going to be a whole nother talk for a different day. 
But here, here's how he started it out with us. He, he started with a, a man and a woman on a little chart up here. And man and a woman come together, one flesh, and they produce, in this case, he was describing a boy. And on each side of this young man, he had two blanks. And on one side was the word sensitive. On the other side was the word rough and tumble. And he said that, that every guy is, is made and they fit somewhere on this continuum between sensitive over here, rough and tumble over there. Okay, now then he made this statement. He said the problem with our culture is it's solely defined manhood as rough and tumble. Who can fart the loudest, punch the hardest, belch the longest. That, that's, that's manhood. Okay, now that was my words, not his. Okay, so, so th- th- this is manhood. And th- then he made this statement. He said, the problem with that is it's not right. Th- that if Jesus is our view of manhood, he- here's what Jesus does. He fills up the spectrum between rough and tumble on this side and sensitive on that side. He's all that. He- he's-, he's the whole one through 10 thing there. He's all of that spectrum. Jesus fills it. And so there's a sense where he is rough and tumble. He can go into the temple and he can throw the Pharisees out of it. But he's also very sensitive. He can look at Jerusalem and weep over it. Okay, so he's, he's the whole thing. Wow. Okay, now here's what happens to a lot of men. And I'll just say men in here. And this can be a ladies thing too. Is we wear rough and tumble like a badge where it is actually showing incompleteness in us. That the fruit of the Spirit, it's going to say, is kindness, tenderheartedness. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. So see, a lack of kindness is not a badge for you to wear. It's sin that needs to be repented of. I, I love the story of Augustine. Um, he's one of the, like if you go back in church history, he's one of the giants in church history. And he was dabbling in cults. He, he had a serious addiction to sex and um, all of that. And his conversion was kind of a miraculous event that happened under um, the Bishop of Milan. His name was Ambrose. And so as, as Augustine is kind of describing and reflecting on his conversion and kind of how that came about and kind of his, his feelings toward Ambrose and, and how he influenced that conversion, he, he says this about it. It was not your great teaching, speaking of Ambrose, it was not your great teaching Although Ambrose was a great teacher, and Augustine goes on to say, although I didn't expect to find that in a Christian church in any case, like it was very good, but it wasn't that, it wasn't your great teaching that actually had the biggest influence on me. He goes on to say, but that you were kind to me. And can I just tell you that that your kindness and your ability to be gentle when you need to be gentle, to be tough when you need to be tough when it's appropriate, your ability to be tender when you need to be tender, that is a great gospel display for you, for you to have both of those. The, the chances are, kind of like Augustine, you'll have people in the wake of that say, man, it, it, it wasn't your eloquence, it wasn't your knowledge, but it was just your ability to be appropriately kind, appropriately tough when you needed to be to me that had this great influence on me. The, there needs to be a growth in that, I think, for a lot of us in the room. An ability to be both of those two things, tough and tender. And lastly, we have the fifth command. We're almost done here. He says, have humility. Do you see it there? Have humility. Okay, so humility is seeing yourself accurately. That's what produces the posture of humility. It's actually looking at yourself like God looks at you. And it's actually looking at God like God looks at himself. See, the problem that we all have is when we think about God, like in our mind, it's different than how the Bible would describe God. 
And when we think about ourselves, like in the mind, when we think about who we are, it's different than how God would describe us. And that gap shrinking between who God is and who we think God is, between who we are and who God says we are, when that gap shrinks, it has this byproduct of creating humility in us. See, when we start to see who God is and who we are in light of that, it produces this posture of humility. See, a lot of our problems is we're like the ant looking at the flea. When an ant looks at a flea, he would look at a flea and think, man, I'm bigger than that. I'm a little better than that. I'm a little more sophisticated than that. If I'm comparing myself to a flea, I, I look pretty good. But when an ant get, gets beside a lion, it looks a lot different, doesn't it? You automatically shrink the size. Although you would say that, yeah, there's a little bit of difference between me and a flea. In, in light of this lion, we look a lot alike. And see, th- this is what happens when you get yourself in the light of God and you start to see God accurately, it starts to give you a right view of yourself. And it starts to help you see that even the worst sinner that you can think of, there's not very much difference between you and them. It gives you this posture of seeing that, that I am bad enough and wicked enough and evil enough that Jesus actually had to die for me. Not, not just Charles Manson, but you. He actually had to die for you. You're that bad. You're that wicked. You're that evil. But, but it also gives you this other posture of knowing that I'm so loved by God that God was actually glad to send Jesus to do it. See, that's what produces this posture of humility. When we start looking at the gospel, at all that God has done for us and realizing it is all by grace. That everything you have been given by God is by grace. If you've got a dollar to your name, for some of us that's a penny. If you've got anything to your name, that is grace to you. If you've been entrusted with a wife, with a husband, that, that's grace to you. Any sort of business savvy you have, that's grace to you. That everything in your life is grace to you. That's the posture of humility. See, what humility does is it allows a, a place like this to actually exist. It allows community in a place like this to actually exist in the midst of a ton of sin. Okay, now I want to finish with, with this idea. I, I think when, when you hear something like this, there is this thing that, that wells up in us of, okay, so man, I've got to get some like new willpower and new resolve to start doing this stuff, to actually kind of start pursuing people, to get, actually get in relationship, to actually start expressing sympathy, to actually grow in kindness. Man, I've got to get some new resolve here. I've got to get after this. I need to like sign my name on a new, new thing to make sure that this actually sticks. When that's the last thing you actually need this morning. There could be a place for that. But, but can I just say what you need more than anything? Every one of these commands are gospel-dependent commands. Did, do you know that? So, so let's just think about this for, for a second and then we'll, we'll close it. This call to unity. Do you know the only way you'll ever value unity is to see that you were a rebellious, wicked sinner running from God with a finger flying high in the air to him? And yet God looked at you, Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy, he, he loved you. He placed his love and affection upon you. He, he made a dead heart come alive. That they, in your rebellion, in your wickedness, in your sin, that the God looked at you and said, I want them. I'm pursuing them. I, I value unity enough with them. I'm going to send my son Jesus to be slaughtered on a cross to cover that sin and bring them into the family. See, so that, that's the only thing that will allow you to value unity like you need to is the gospel has to drop further in your heart. Let's take sympathy. The only way you will ever pursue sympathy and express sympathy is for you to realize that God has expressed sympathy to you. 
that he has sent Jesus, Philippians 2, to wrap on human flesh, to actually get into your world, to walk in your shoes so that he can be a sympathetic high priest, as, as Hebrews tells us. When you take brotherly love, that it is the work of God for you that has brought you into the family. It's the work of God for you that the blood of Jesus covers all of that sin that kept you out of the family, that actually brought you into the family. And that that same blood covers all the sins of those people around you. Take, take tenderhearted, kindhearted. If you're a Christian, do you know why you're a Christian? Romans 2 says it was because of the kindness of God that led you to repentance. You know that? Do you you know the only way you'll ever be kind to people around you consistently is when you sit in and allow the kindness of God to wash over your heart? How about humility? You know the only way you will ever have humility is when you see yourself in light of the gospel? That you are so messed up that God had to die for you. And so loved that he was glad to do it. And for our church family, I'm praying, uh, man, this is the angst of this morning, that God in his grace might deepen the gospel in all of us, give us new eyes to see the unsearchable riches of Christ, and it might produce these five things. Amen? Let's pray together. I want to give you just a second to, to sit in that and chances are, if you've got relational issues with people in the room, chances are your pride and arrogance and lack of humility lies right in the center of it. See, even if they sinned against you and put a wedge in between you and them with their sin, see, what your pride and arrogance will do is take a sledgehammer and knock that wedge further down. And so maybe, maybe we should just stop and ask as we finish is where can you see like in the relational conflicts that you have working right now, where your pride and your arrogance are contributing to that? Where, where, can, where can you see that? And if you can't see that, th- that's the problem. You're blind to your pride and arrogance. So, so maybe we can just take a second to ask the spirit of God to work these things into us, to, to make us a people who value unity. I mean, like really value it. Value this sympathy. Value this brotherly love, this this kind-heartedness. Value humility in our place. And so to that end, let let me pray for you. God, I want to pray for our church family. God, that uh, by your grace, that you would work these things deeply into us. God, God, that you would help us see how you valued unity and bringing us into your family. God, God, that you would help us see how how sympathetic you were when we were your enemies. That, That you would help us see how you have loved us like a brother. That you would help us see your kind heartedness toward us, your gentleness toward us. God, and you would help us see a great view of you that would give us a posture of humility with one another. So God, by your grace, will you, will you work that into us? Will you work that into us? It's in your good name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, 
please visit us at stonegate-church.com.